Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 25. Probably one of the most misunderstood chapters by the denominational world in the Bible. Matthew 25, we'll start with verse 35. For I wasn't hungry, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we a hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? And when, we, and when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of my, these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was a hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily, I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did not it to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. I didn't bring the, the clicker with me, Martin. Can you, can you advance the slides for me? When it comes time, I'm sorry. I forgot to mention in class, and I apologize to her for this, but uh, Sister Mary Kay is back with us, and she has not been feeling well, and she also had, some, uh, had a procedure, had some shots in her back, and they seem to be helping. And so we are certainly glad to have her back. She's a big part of who we are, and we're thankful for that. And I failed to, to mention that, and, I, and I'm sorry for that. And I, and I really appreciate uh, Ron's prayer. I really do. Thank you for that. The closer we get to spring, the closer we get to planting gardens. And that's what I love to do. I love to plant vegetable gardens. I look forward every year to that process, to doing that. I look forward to preparing and planting with my family. Cameron especially enjoys doing that, and the whole family. We get out after I uh, uh, lay the, the soil by, and we, we, as a family, put that together. And we look forward to taking care of that garden. Now, taking care of the garden is hard work, isn't it? It's difficult. It's hot. 
It's uh, bugs are out. It's dirty. But the process itself is not that difficult. The carrying out of the process is difficult. You have to have knowledge. You have to know what you're doing. You have to be willing to get out there and work hard and get it done. But the procedure is not that difficult. We cultivate. We consider what we want to plant. And we care for those plants. That's a one, two, three step, isn't it? Now, it sounds a lot easier than it is. But the process that we lay out is easy. The carrying it out can be very difficult. Samuel Coleridge, the famous British poet and writer who authored The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, was walking in his garden one day with a close friend of his. His friend was bemoaning the fact that he says, parents of today, I think this is the third slide, parents of today are thrusting religion down the throats of their children. He made the statement, he said, when my children are old enough, I'm just going to let them make up their own minds. Coleridge, as he was walking through his garden, replied, that is a marvelous idea. I believe I will do that with my garden. I will just let grow what wants to grow. Well, his shocked friend looked at him and said, well, weeds will grow. He said, that's right. And weeds will grow unbidden in the heart of a child. So we have to do some planning, right? We have to do some cultivating. We have to do some some caring about what we've got. We have to consider what we're going to plant. From the very beginning of time, God has demanded service, hasn't He? He has demanded service. He demanded that Adam serve Him in the garden. He demanded that the patriarchs of old served as priests to the family. He demanded that Israel serve Him through the observance of the law of Moses. And He demands that people serve Him today. How do we do it today? We do it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Being faithful to that. Being obedient to it and then living in it. In the passage just read for us, Jesus pictures the judgment day. He pictures the judgment day. And then we see in this scene the separation of the righteous and the wicked in a very simple manner. Notice Matthew 25, 35 through 36 once more. He described, the Lord did, service rendered to Him as His being hungered and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. Pretty simple, isn't it? To those that were condemned to damnation for eternity, they heard, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. Very simple and straightforward, isn't it? I want us to keep in mind that the lost here, they weren't the worst of the worst. He didn't say anything about murderers, adulterers, thieves, liars. He didn't mention those people. He simply mentioned those who chose to disobey His will. I don't know that they were necessarily doing anything wrong, actively, but they were neglecting to do what He required. 
want us to think of the idea of maintaining a garden this morning. And I want us to think about maintaining our personal gardens. Now many of us will plant a vegetable garden this spring and and we'll have to tend it and we'll have to cultivate it. We'll have to do those things. But I want us to think about our personal gardens, the garden of life in which we live, in which we labor. We have to maintain a well-tended garden and it doesn't just apply to children. But it does apply to them in a lot of ways. If we neglect our garden of life, all sorts of problems begin to happen, just as it does in our vegetable gardens. We want to be proactive in tending our gardens, and this morning we want to look at some possible problems that might arise. And we want to begin with this idea of we have to cultivate our children. How do we do that? Well, what do we do when we cultivate a garden? We go out with the right equipment, we perform the duties, And we have a cultivated spot of soil. We have to equip our children. We have to equip them. We have to equip them for life. For the things that happen in life. We have to prepare them for going out into the world. They've got to be ready for that. When our Lord was 12 years old, He accompanied His parents to Jerusalem to observe the Passover feast. On the return trip, the Holy Spirit tells us, Luke 2, 52, that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That's a very important statement. From that statement we learn that there are four areas of growth in which we need to cultivate our children, in which we need to equip them. A child must be placed in a proper position in life to grow physically. I've been reading in the news and it seems like I've read a couple of instances where law enforcement have rescued children who had been mistreated in their homes. Particularly, I remember the last one I read was a young boy, somewhere around the age of 12, had been kept in a closet for five years with no light coming in, He was fed minimally. They said he looked like a concentration prisoner, concentration camp prisoner when they got him. See, we have to place our children in a position where they are safe. They have to be able to grow physically, don't they? That's a requirement for parents to take care of their children physically. Notice what the writer said. Christ grew in stature. He's talking physically here. This is his physical stature. We are to provide for our children the necessary requirements of life. I want you to notice 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. Paul said, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Do you recall what Paul said about the man that refused to work and take care of his family? Do you remember what he said about that man if, if he came begging for food or money or something of that nature? Do you remember what Paul had to say about that man who would not go out and work and labor and take care of his family? He said, let him be hungry. If any would not work, neither should he eat. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10. Now what do we do as a congregation? We're going to feed that neglected family. We're going to take care of that neglected family, but we're not going to offer that same care to the man that will not take care of his own family. 
Now there's a difference between someone not being able to do those things and someone choosing not to do those things. Sometimes we're not able to work at a job. The Lord understands that. What are we to do? Take care of each other. That's exactly what Christians do. We're going to take care of the neglected. But we have to allow our children to grow physically. The second thing that we notice in that passage is that children must be given the opportunity to grow intellectually. Intellectually. Jesus increased, it says, in wisdom. What kind of wisdom is He talking about? Well, the specific events that unfolded in the life of Christ that lent themselves to His development intellectually are not described for us. However, we learn later on through His teachings and through the things that He did that His intellectual development was masterful. We read the parables that He told. We, we hear about the things that He taught. And it's obvious to the reader that He knew how people lived in Galilee. We're talking about worldly wisdom here. It can also mean spiritual wisdom, but we address that in a few moments. Talking about being wise, knowing what to do in the world. Christ was not ignorant when it came to understanding how people operated in this world. We might call that common sense. He had common sense. He used good judgment throughout His life. Why? Because His mother and His father trained Him that way. He grew in stature and in wisdom. He had good common sense. A child must be given the opportunity to grow socially. Socially. We have to cultivate and equip. Jesus knew how to interact with His fellow men, didn't He? He knew how to treat people in the proper way. He was respected and loved by His neighbors. He was recognized for the goodness that He did throughout the world. He was exonerated for His teaching ability at least until those teachings contradicted their beloved traditions. As parents, we must equip our children with the ability to be able to interact with the world. Now, that doesn't mean we go along with the sins of the world. But if we cannot interact with the world in the proper way, how are we going to lead others to Christ? Peter said our actions were to be such that when people levied accusations against us, that they could not legitimately speak evil of us. Notice what he said in 1 Peter 3.16, Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. That happens even in the church sometimes, doesn't it? Have you ever known people that like to just do a lot of talking? They'll talk about this, and they'll talk about that, and they'll hear this, and they'll hear that, and then they'll repeat it over here, and... Repeat it over there, and that happens sometimes, doesn't it? That just happens in the world in general. But see, Peter says you live your life that if someone does say something about you, that they ought to be ashamed of themselves because everybody else knows it's not true. See, that's how Christ grew. He knew how to interact socially with people. A child must also be given the opportunity to grow spiritually. Jesus was pleasing to God. He had favor with man socially, and he had favor with God spiritually. 
He developed spiritually as he grew, and that is a direct result of his parents. I think it is contemptible to provide for the physical, the intellectual, and the social development of our children only to neglect the spiritual. We can't do that. Those benefits are necessary for proper development. Paul commended Timothy's faith that first dwelt in his grandmother and in his mother, 2 Timothy 1.5. He would go on to commend his mother and his grandmother for teaching Timothy from a youth, 2 Timothy 3.15. And as parents, we better take seriously the obligation to rear our children so they can develop spiritually. Now we must be proactive in equipping our children. We have to cultivate them, but we must also cultivate them through example. They ought to see us living what we preach, right? That's the greatest sermons that we can ever hear. Someone's life unfolding before our eyes. Children are impressionable, aren't they? Especially when it comes to mom and dad or grandparents. And they deserve to have the right example reflected in the lives of their parents. Notice 1 Kings 15 verse 3. It was said of the king of Judah, Abijam, and he walked in all the sins of his father which he had done before him, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. Later on, we read about Nadab, the king of Israel, 1 Kings fifteen twenty six, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin. It's not just fathers. Mothers can be a bad influence as well, can't they? Notice 2 Chronicles 21, 5-6. Because of the evil influence of Jezebel, the king of Israel was cast from the throne. Jehoram was thirty and two years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel... Like as did the house of Ahab, for he had the daughter of Ahab to wife. And he wrought that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Do you think she paid attention to her mother and her actions? I think so. There's no doubt if children are going to be successful in all aspects of life. They need the right examples living before them and their parents. Or I think it will be much harder for them to be successful. Our children need to be ingrained to have the proper respect for God, home, and and nation when that's appropriate. And I think the moral examples that they have will help set the course upon which they walk if they are proper. If we're not the proper example, weeds will grow in the hearts of our children instead of the love and respect for God. So if we're going to keep weeds out of our spiritual gardens, we must cultivate. But we must also consider what we're growing. We must consider our personal choices. We must choose to love the church. We must show that love for God, for the body which He gave His life for. Jesus loved the church. He gave Himself for it, Ephesians 5.25. We all want the church to prosper. We want the church to, to do more good works. We want the church to help the helpless. We want the church to reach out to the lost. We all want that, don't we? That's what we want the church to be able to accomplish. 
But do we follow Christ's commandment when He said to seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? There's something we need to understand when we are considering personal choices. We do not have to actively try to kill the church to destroy the church, to harm the church. We simply have to neglect it. We do not have to actively go into our gardens and pour diesel fuel all over where we've tilled up to destroy that garden. We simply have to neglect it. Just let whatever grow, grow. When I was planting gardens in Memphis, there's a certain grass that grows there called nut grass. It grows from a little nut. And you can mow it and you can rake it, but you've got to dig that nut out of the ground or it will come back every year. And I dug more uh, nuts out of the ground than I, can, than I care to remember. Because the very time, the very spring, when I didn't till that up, go out there with the rakes, rake all through my garden, try to get every bit of that grass I could find, it wouldn't be two days and it seemed like it was knee high. See, we cannot neglect. If we're, We need to consider what we're doing in our gardens. Does neglect happen in the church? Neglect has taken its toll on the church everywhere it has ever been. Either it has just died out or gone apostate. That doesn't mean every congregation of the Lord's people have done that. But in every place where they've ever existed, it has happened in some form. Christ loved the church and we ought to love the church because we are the church, aren't we? It's not the building, it's the people. I want us to notice what Paul wrote, Ephesians 2, 19-22. He said, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. And because we're in the same household, we ought to care and love one another. And I want us to know, how do we do that? How do we do that? How is that accomplished? Well, it isn't just simply accomplished by loving our brethren, having a, a fondness for them. We cannot neglect each other in our work. Each of us are part of the other's garden, aren't we? We must come together and work as a team. We must not expect a few to do all of the work of the many. Romans 12, 4 through 5, Paul told those at Rome, he said, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. We have many members in our body with various talents, and we use them and we incorporate them, and, and we don't neglect one another and we love each other. This is one of the greatest families in the body of Christ I've ever seen in my life. We love each other, and let's not neglect one another. If we're going to love and produce in the way that God wants us to, we have to learn a few things. We have to learn a few things. One of the things we have to learn is we put the church first. We put the church first. Christ died for this organization. 
He died for this body. Let's put it first. How do we show love for the church? Well, when we read Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, we learn, don't forsake the assembling. Come together. Don't, don't miss that. When we come together on the first day of the week or any time the leadership has designated that we come together, we come together on Wednesday evenings as well. But let's not neglect that. Let's not, not do that as the writer of Hebrews says, as is the practice of some. See, we don't want to be in the group of the some. We want to be in the group of the few, don't we? Those who do not do that. We give liberally to the church so she can fulfill the great commission in the, the works of the local congregation, 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2. We think well of the church. We speak well of the church. Now, we need to understand what that means, right? What does it mean when we speak well of the church? Do we simply say, well, those People as a group at the White Oak congregation are good folks. Well, that's we do do that because that's the truth. But who is the church? Each one of us makes up the church. We speak good of each one of us, right? We don't want to say, well, sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so, they're pretty good, but when I hear that, I just shut down. I don't want to hear any more. I don't want to hear any more, right? We've all, we've all experienced that. We had, a, we had a brother in Cordova. Eventually, he just left the congregation. But he was unhappy. He never had a happy day in his life. Never had a good day in his life. And I would go and I would sit with that man and, and I, would, I would pull out of him some funny moments of some experiences that he had in life. And, and I had a good time interacting with him. But I was the only one who knew that even existed. Because when he walked in the building... The first thing he would wanted to know is, did so-and-so come and speak to me? And we had a little book, just like we do here, that has everybody's picture in it. It's got everybody's phone number in it, and beside everybody's picture, he would write, spoke to me on such-such date. I said, good grief, man. I said, did you speak to those brethren? Well, no, I'm, I can hardly walk in the building. I said, what's that got to do with anything? I said, you walk right by that audio-visual room as you walk in the door, and you're, you fuss about those men in there. They never speak to you. I've never seen you speak to them going in that door. You never look to your right and say, hello, fellas, good morning. But you're going to write down when someone last spoke to you. I said, we've got a problem here. See, we don't want to speak ugly of the church. And that means we're individuals that make up the church. Right? That man had a huge problem. As far as I know, he never repented. That's sad. We have to appreciate each other. We have to learn that we put each other first. Paul said this, Philippians 4 verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. What a wonderful verse. Does it say, well, because you have a difference of opinion on something, I want to dwell on that and I want to be irritated at brother so-and-so over here. That's not what Paul said. He said, what things are beautiful, things that are lovely, pure, righteous, think on those things. 
we had a had a sister that vacation Bible school would roll around and and she would just fuss and complain about the sister that took care of the refreshments. And boy, let me tell you, that lady, she would work and she would plan. She'd run all over Memphis gathering up things to, to have and, and special shaped chicken nuggets and she would have a theme. And boy, she spent a lot of time and her own money doing that. And we had a sister that didn't like the way she operated. She came to me. And she said, now... Elizabeth needs to do it this way. She's not doing this or that. It kind of hurt my feelings a little bit for this lady. And so then I had to ask her, I said, well, let me ask you a very important question. How's that any of your business? I said, how's that any of your business? I said, she's in charge of the refreshments. How does that reflect upon you? What any business is it of yours how she arranges the chicken nuggets? Right? Is that what we want to think on? We want to think on how someone didn't fill the cups up really to that third line on that little clear cup? Or they put too much ice or not enough ice? Or Are those things lovely? Are those things pure? Are those things righteous? No. And on top of that, none of her business. How she handled it. We need to do what Paul wants us to do. We don't want weeds growing in our gardens. We don't want to focus on the rocks in the garden. We want to focus on the plants, don't we? Well, we need to cultivate. We need to consider. And we need to care about our gardens. We need to care about those gardens. And we need to care about souls. Well, which souls do we care for? Well, first of all, we're going to care for our own soul, right? That's the first soul we need to be worried about. The writer of Hebrews asked a question that has no answer. Hebrews 2 verse 3. Notice this. He said, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him? How can we escape if we neglect? There's no answer to that. We're not going to escape, are we? Not going to happen. We have to care for our own souls and we have to care enough to seek salvation out for ourselves. Don't rely on the preacher. Don't rely on the neighbor. Seek it out for self. We have to know and own our own faith. Never rely upon someone for our own salvation. That's not what we want to do. Jesus made salvation a very personal decision. He said this, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give ye rest. That's a personal decision. He gave the requirements for being His disciple too, didn't He? Matthew 16, 24-26, He said, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for My sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? 
Well, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Our souls are priceless. We can't put a price on our souls. It doesn't matter what we garner in this world. It makes no difference what the checking account says when we leave this earth. But I can tell you one thing. If we end up standing beside the rich man, we would give it all to not be there. That's how precious our souls are. Now we have to make the, the choice personally whether to accept God's gift of salvation. We have to accept it. He requires us to believe, which is a work of God. Notice what Jesus said, John six twenty nine. This is the work of God that you believe on Him who He hath sent. Someone that tells you that works are not involved in salvation are contradicting what Christ said. They're making Him a liar. We have to perform the work of repentance, Acts 26, verse 20. Paul preached to the Gentiles that they had to bring forth works meet for repentance. Works worthy of repentance. He commanded the Romans to perform the act of confession, Romans 9, 9 and 10. Particularly verse 10, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession unto salvation. God requires baptism to be saved. That's God's plan. That's not Rick's plan. I have heard so many times someone say, well, why do we have to be baptized in water? I don't know why God chose that. I don't know. But I know that He did choose it. And I know what He said it does for us. Peter said, 1 Peter three twenty one, the like figure, making a comparison to Noah being saved in the ark, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism washes our sins away. And we have to understand that's why we're baptized. I've talked with people before and they say, well, I was baptized. I said, why? To join the church. I said, when were you saved prior to baptism? Now look, let's read what Peter said one more time. Open your Bible, 1 Peter 3, 21. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a clear conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We talked in Bible class this morning. We come into contact with the blood of Jesus at the point we're baptized. Romans 6, 3 and 4. Then we keep working in the garden of life, don't we? James explained, James two seventeen, Faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Later on he wrote, You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only? James two twenty four. I'm going to take James' word for it, right? That's how we care for our own souls, but we also must care for the souls of others. If it is our goal to fulfill the whole of man, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the whole duty of man, we have to reach out to those around us. Can you imagine what great despair King David must have felt when he wrote the psalm, Psalm 142, the first four verses? Notice what he said. He said, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before Him. I showed before Him my trouble. 
when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way wherein I walked have, have they probably laid a snare for me. I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. That breaks my heart to hear that. No one? How many people in the world today or in our own neighborhoods believe that nobody cares for their souls? Millions, billions. Well, there's at least one person who cares for their souls, and of course that's the Heavenly Father. We better join Him in that. He loved the world so much that He did give His only begotten Son, John 3.16, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus described His earthly mission as coming to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. We have to have that same level of care for souls. If we don't, we're simply sitting by and allowing weeds to grow in our gardens, and that's not what we want. That's why Jesus sent out the Great Commission, all of us, Mark 16, 15 through 16, Go ye into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. You know, I believe it was wrong and callous for those Roman soldiers to sit at the foot of Christ's cross and watch Him die a torturous death. I believe that's wrong and callous and hateful and mean. How is it different if we believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16, and we sit by and watch souls go into eternity every day without trying to bring them to Christ? While we stroll through the garden of life, we need to focus on the important things, right? If we don't, we'll be growing weeds instead of Christians. It doesn't take a weed long to multiply. It doesn't take a weed long to take over. It'll destroy everything in its way. It'll take all the good nutrients away from your tomato plants. Then you won't have anything good. We have to be diligent in our efforts in preparing for the next life. We do that. Let's cultivate our children. And through cultivating our children, we learn a lot of things ourselves. We need to be considerate of our personal choices, loving and learning. We need to care for our own souls and the souls of others. We need to do all of that. That's how we tend our gardens. We can reach and impact people in this life. Christ gave His life for us. I don't think it's too much for Him to ask that we do the things He's commanded for us to do. If you've never obeyed the gospel, your garden's not looking too good. And we've all been there. Everybody who is a Christian once was not a Christian. And it's an honorable thing to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talked about how to do that. Now sometimes we let our gardens get out of control a little bit, don't we? I remember a couple of years ago I had a blight come through and killed everything in my garden except for the squash. Well, I had to get out the next year and really get with it. I had to get back to work hard. Sometimes we allow our gardens to be overrun with weeds and, and we need to get in there and cultivate a little better. Sometimes we make mistakes as good gardeners and we need to change that, don't we? If you're a Christian and you've become unfaithful in some way, 
Come back to God. Don't, don't allow your garden to be overrun with weeds. If you have need to answer this Lord's invitation, please do that as we stand and as we sing.